Hello, what's up, what's up? Welcome to The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Hano, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy. All right, so a quick reminder of the Patreon page. It's in the seventh and final season of the podcast. Yes, and we're still going. We are already doing the 2020 retrospective where we talk about the films nominated for Best International Feature Film alongside another round. We've already discussed Better Days and Collective. The Man of Soul the Skin is coming soon. I hope you look forward to that. All right. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the film that received the Honorary Foreign Language Film Award at the 27th Academy Awards. That film is Gate of Hell, or its original language, Jigo Kumon, written and directed by Tenosuke Kinugasa. So for a quick summary of the film, this is about um, a samurai named Morito Enda who rescues Lady Kessa from a violent uprising that happened. But he falls in love with her, but he becomes... um, obsessed with her when she finds out when he finds out that she's actually already married to a man named Watao Watanabe. So he becomes increasingly distraught by that and will not stop in pursuing her. So that is a quick summary of Gate of Hell. So our guest for this episode is from Portugal. You have already heard him in the second season where we talked about No Man's Land at the films of 2001, the fourth season where we talked about Fanny Alexander at the films of 1983, and the sixth season where we talked about Through a Glass Darkly in the films of 1961. He's a contributor at the, the film experience. He's a writer at Magazine HD, and he has published articles at Photogenie. I'm so happy to have him back. Please welcome Claudia Alves. Hi, Claudia. Thank you so much for coming back for the fourth time. Yes? Hi, thanks for having me back, especially this episode to discuss a really beautifully costumed film, because while I also write about film, I studied and sometimes do costume design, so this is a matter very close to my heart. Yes, oh, it is. Yeah, and this film won, of course, I'm talking about this because this film won the best costume design in color, caught Oscar. It was the first oh. Japanese film to win that. Is that the reason why you chose this film? Yeah. Oh. I mean, also, oh. Be- also because it's a Palme d'Or winner. And I have watched all the Palme d'Or winners. For, yeah. for a bunch you of haven't. Yeah. yeah. I've read that entire, like, is it like a series? Or just one article split into different sections? In magazine HD. I'm discussing. Yeah, they're discussing the Palme d'Or winners. Oh, no, that that's just a giant article. Yeah. Yeah, I've read that, even though that was in Portuguese. Um, that was a test of friendship, because there was no <laughs> translation available, so I was translating on a Google Translate one by one. But, you know, after that, like, yeah, he's a person that I would want on my, on my podcast. So, before we continue, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? So, as you said, you can find my writing in English at the Film Experience blog, and also at Photogenie, a Belgian website. If you read in Portuguese, you can find me at Magazine HD. Otherwise, you can also reach me at Letterboxd and Twitter and Instagram at DC. All right. So before we continue, yeah. this episode is going to come the Friday before the Oscars. Which film are you rooting for in costume design? Oh, um... I mean, that is a complicated question because I'm rooting for one, but I think another one should win. <laughs> like, I'm. Please expound. <laughs> okay. 
I'm rooting for Nightmare Alley because it's Luis Caira and is a, I, I want Portuguese diaspora to have won an Oscar somehow. <laughs> and actually, I've actually met him. He's really nice. And I love the glamour of that film, even though I wouldn't nominate it. Um, and, but who I actually think is best is Cyrano, Cyrano, whatever, with uh, costumes by Jacqueline Duran and Massimo Cantini Parini. And I love those costumes. Anyway, if, n- neither of those is going to win, though. <laughs> it's going, what are you predicting to it's win? It's going to be Cruella. Oh, you think it's Cruella? Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty much luck at this point. A lock? Yeah, I will be extremely surprised if Jenny Bevan doesn't win her third statuette. Do you think there's a chance that Dune gets it? I mean, sure, but mm, no, I think Ruel is going to win. It is so showy and like it is so much about the clothes. I can't imagine it losing at this point. The only the, the only possible thing is that no period piece set later than the nineteen fifties has ever won that Oscar. But I'm sure this one will. All right, so that's a good jumping off point because you know, like I said, this film *Get of Hell* is also a costume design winner. Um, this is not the first time for you to watch this film. Um, do you remember the first time you've seen it? What was your reaction to that? And what is your reaction now to *Get of Hell*? Oh, that is actually an interesting question because I think I watched it around four or five times. Um, the first time was when I was just getting into like the film and the Oscars and I want I wanted to see this this film, this famous Japanese film that won. It's, it's, it's like a it looks like a bizarre anomaly in the history of the best costume design Oscar. And at that time, which was around I guess twenty ten, the copy available of this film was in horrible condition. The colors were faded. The quality of the image was really poor. So when later on I saw the, the I think twenty eleven restoration, the one that Criterion has on its Blu Ray, um, it was just like watching a new movie because it, it was just such a different experience. The sheer spectacle of of the it, it's one of the prettiest movies I think I've ever seen. It's simply gorgeous and you know it, 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 it was really like watching a different film even though I liked it the first time there was sort of a barrier between me and the film because I couldn't really experience the the visual splendor of the thing as it was meant to and then watching the restoration was oh I can see why everybody went gaga for this thing and why the Oscars gave this gave these two prizes to this Japanese film, even though, you know, they're not usually too fond of (laughs) rewarding uh, international cinema outside their segregated category, if you will. Like, you're not a costume person, but like, looking at this film, you have to be impressed by the Who said I'm not? (laughs) Anyway, I'm kidding. You are not, I know you. Wow. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode. I hope you have a good see you tomorrow. Sure. Yeah, whatever.
<laughs> but like I, really honestly what did you think of the costumes because I, I know you're not the costume person again I'm reiterating this because I know you and I talk to you <laughs> every week I've been talking to you every week for more than a year so um uh, What a costume layman like you what did you, what did you think you know i'm I was very curious if that was really a genuine question or were you trying to corner me but you know personally i this film i mean just in general you know the the film has a very has a stunning visuals and it's absorbing with its use of color um I'm not I'm not a cinematography person so like the difference between like a with Eastman call or with other film stocks would be like something that would, re- would register with me but with this one there is a richness that comes out of it and it is reflected in the costumes as well and it's some it's the thing it's the visuals that pulls me in because you know um, I don't know if you would agree with me on this I think the film aside from the opening sequence it is very methodically paced and And you have to be on board with the film's wavelength and uh, on its movement and if you're not you are gonna get lost because the film dwells in moments but that's one of the things that really pulls me in regardless is that um, the visuals are just like um, jaw-dropping um, and not in a sh- just a showy way where the costumes there is a richness to it that is feels genuine. You know, of course, you can question my sense of what's genuine in costumes, but it feels like it is lived in in a time and place. There's also an element of like it is a bit of a it's a, it's a bit theatrical in a way, but at the same time, it really just go in syncs with the world of the film. And, you know, one word that I noted here is tactical precision. And I think it's just reflected in all across the board with this film is that it is rich and um, that really helps. Because the film kind of demands you to really observe and look closely. Does it answer your question? Yeah, kind of. Because, you know, it's not... Because, <laughs> no, I, I was... No. I was, I was genuine in asking that question because the costume design Oscar isn't... The winner isn't voted on by costume designers. So I think your opinion is very valuable here to get to an idea of why it triumphs at the end. Uh, it is visually striking and I, I do agree that it is somewhat theatrical in this presentation it is it is based on a play <laughs> so uh, the sort of, it is mostly set in interiors it's mostly people talking in rooms and at least in terms of structure I think you can really notice its theatrical origins but the visuals to me really, evoke a different kind of art which is the painted scrolls like and the opening is just astonishing in that regard because you open with someone opening a painted scroll about the age of rebellion of the 12th century and as the camera is moving across the image as you're supposed to read those scrolls suddenly you dissolve into a camera movement that is the same but instead of a painting you're watching A staged reality and it's it is it is it is watching history through art and even the pace of your gaze is dictated by art and not by narrative or whatever 
it's it's like a, it's a, a materialization a dramatization of pictorial art and it's it's beautiful the film and i i guess that it might be a bit challenging again because it's basically a chamber drama that's the thing you have to pay attention to what's being talked about you have to pay attention to what's not being said because i think what's not being said is usually the most vital thing in these all these interactions and every every interaction every social dynamic is incredibly formalized and you're really seeing a drama that is trying to replicate social costumes from medieval japan and not necessarily attempting to make them more relatable to us everything is very formal very theatrical there's an economy of gesture there is you know the film is not even 90 minutes long it is actually a really simple story but i think its simplicity its formality allows it to explore a variety of themes that may be a more evocative or i don't i don't even know the word it is it, it is it looks so straightforward and so stagey and theatrical and formal and sort of severe but at the same time it's splendorous to look at and at the same time there's a lot of themes that exist in the silences rather than what's being said and i think i'm going completely off the rails and being completely incoherent and i'm sorry <laughs> i slept really badly last night i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that is. Um, I, I know you. I've been friends with you for more than a year. I know you go off the rails, but that's fine. Um, you said you you've mentioned it quite a few times now that you know it is incredibly formalized and almost theatrical a bit. That allowed it to present a variety of themes, but in terms of engagement with the audiences, do you think that helped? That strategy to make it very formalized. I mean. Um, <clears throat> I think it kind of helps because this period in the history of Japanese cinema is really a time of sort of trying to circumnavigate around censorship and doing contemporary political and social commentary through the guy through the the costume of period pieces. That's why the Jidageki, um in part why the Jidageki. Um, genre become so popular at this time because you could analyze your time without having to be direct about it and I think the sort of very patient very somber um, staging of this film kind of invites a deeper look like it forces you to pay attention because it's mostly people talking again. It's forcing you to pay attention. And I think that invitation to look deeper while not being exhausting, again, this film is not even 90 minutes long, it, it, it helps. I, don't, I think it's the alienation you might have registered. I think it's a way of beckoning the audience closer. So in the end, I think it's paradoxically kind of works to engage an audience because it's, it's you have to think about this like to understand these character dynamics you have to hear what they're saying you have to 
interiorize what is going on. And, you know, I think, I think it's worth, I think it's a beautiful film. Maybe it's not my favorite from this period of Japanese cinema, but it is gorgeous and it is devastating. It's incredibly cruel. Right? Yes. Um, it is quite a punishing film for the characters because it, it explores something that, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of thinking about it in the main characters and kind of pathetic, but at the same time, you understand the spiral and the film makes you understand the spiral that he experiences and it's almost like inevitable snowball that is going to happen to him. Um, you said it's not your favorite film from the era from Japan. What is your favorite film from that era from Japan? Maybe Sancho the Bailiff, which is also from this year. Is it also Jigaideki? It is. And again, it's, it, is, it is much crueler than this one. It is the height of the pressing cinema, that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of glad I missed that for now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure. Uh, um... I, I'm, I'm just trying to get back on my feet, you know, so um, it's not yet good time for me to bring myself down but you know you mentioned about the period dramas the gigadekis of this time um kind of circumnavigating um censorship in what the what the filmmakers wanted to explore especially in post-war japan um what are the what are the themes of this film that you think uh, that the film delved into and how do you think the um, the mask of it being a gigadeki a period drama um, how do you think that helped in tackling that said topic? Okay, so this is a complicated question and that it's going to get a complicated answer. I promise I will be... No, I don't promise. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't lie. <laughs> <laughs> I will not be sure because that is not in my nature. Um, yeah. So I think to understand sort of this film's political intent a bit better, you have to understand both the director and the time. When this was made, like Tenosuke Kinugasa wasn't always a very anti-establishment person. He started as an actor specializing in female roles, he, and he was part of a, a mass protest slash resignation after the studios he worked with started hiring women to play those roles in the early 1910s, 1920s, and at first year of Japanese cinema, which is unfortunately really unrepresented nowadays because most of those films are lost. Um, but in the 20s, especially in the late 20s, he really became a name in the avant-garde as a director. And sort of you can see throughout the rest of his career as something of the, of the leftist thought that to characterize the avant-garde sort of manifesting in the cinema. His most famous film from this period is A Page of Madness, which is maybe the most important 1920s Japanese film in terms of representing the influence of the several vanguards, especially European vanguards, and how they manifested in Japanese cinema. It's a crazy film. It's, it's about madness. Uh, and it, it is completely wild in comparison to this one. But I, I think you can see the sort of the interest in both the darker parts of the human soul and also his interest in more anti-establishment politics at this time, the late 20s. 
And then when you get to this film, of course, a lot of things happen in, in Japan <laughs> between the late 20s and 1953. Um, and when you get to this film, again, there was a lot of censorship in postcard Japan. Some part of it implemented by the American presence in the country. So artists needed to to get creative <laughs> about when exploring the world they lived in. And I think this film is a prime example of that because what you what you see in the first act is a a war story that sort of paints this warrior as a noble hero who is characterized by his unwillingness to betray his master. He is an embodiment of loyalty. And, you know, Morito is our protagonist. He is saving Lady Kesa, who is pretending to be our mistress, so that, um, so she's basically a decoy. And he protects her, and he's loyal to his master, even confronting his own brother, who has, who has betrayed the clan at this point. Um, so he is this picture of perfect Japanese heroism, supposedly. He is, he is loyal to authority. He was not, will not betray his master, even when his own family has. And he saves the damsel in distress, everything. And then, in Act 2, you get introduced to his obsession with Lady Kessa. And you start to see a darker side of this militaristic society that elevates this sort of man to positions of power and to positions of, of idolatry. He's a hero. He's, um, and you start to see how that propensity for violence maybe is not the best thing for a human being. And instead of watching it through the point of view of militaristic honor, you start to see it from the point of view of oppression, really. Of how he will not rest until he gets what he wants. And his language, sort of to answer anything in the world, is violence. It's bloodshed. And you have the, the character, also, of, of this lord, who Morito asks to give him Lady Kessa. And at, at first he, he refuses because Lady Kessa is already married to another samurai, Watanabe, as you mentioned. But the film doesn't simply portray this feudal lord as a benevolent character because you really start to see how he's just a person in power playing with people. Like that scene where he invites slash forces Lady Casa to play for him and Morito. And you get a scene where honestly it looks like Morito is going to rape her. And you, you, the first act was about portraying Morito as a hero, was about showing the society where Milit militarism is rule. It's a society defined by war. 
And then the second act is all about twisting your perception of it. Oh, so this warrior is actually a fucking asshole. And maybe these values that he embodies are not that good after all. And are kind of inhuman. And maybe all this power concentrated in one supposedly benevolent master is also a bad idea because he's just playing with people. The feudal lord is just is just a figure of oppression. And the third act to me is also sort of criticizing the patriarchal oppression of post-war Japan, Japan, post-war Japanese society and ideas of womanhood because in the end, Lady Kassa's weapon or way of solving this conundrum is to sacrifice herself. And the need to self-sacrifice I think, to me, feels like a very pessimistic reading of Japanese society, of this very patriarchal society where women have no power and the only power she has in the end is her own death. And it reminded me of a film that I don't like very much, a contemporary film, <laughs> Promising Young Woman, where it, oh. where it has kind of a similar ending, where a woman in this milieu of sexual assault, eventually weaponizes her death at the hands of an aggressor to, you know, to get justice, to win, whatever that means. And especially if you look at this film in the context of other Japanese films from this period, like, we're going to talk about them later, but like the films of Naruse and Ozu, and especially Mitoguchi, you start to see a lot of these films are looking critically at the role women play in Japanese society and now Japanese society at this time really disempowers women and relegates them to a place of victimhood. And I think all of that exists within Gate of Hell. And you can see it, oh, this is just a, a story of the past, just history, this is about 12th century Japan. But it seems to reverberate both with audiences of the 1950s and I still think with audiences of today. We can still perceive a criticism of military, of militarization, of a rule of force and of female victimhood. I think we can see all of that still reverberating into their society, which is why I think Gate of Hell sort of endures. And in a way, maybe the fact that it's a very formalized period piece helps it endure because it doesn't seem so tied to 1953. It's just more timeless. Right? <laughs> maybe I'm, oh, you're maybe I'm talking out of my yeah. ass. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, thank you for unpacking those things because, you know, with Gate of Hell, I always felt this simmering energy like I, there is something going on i cannot comprehend it because the film is quiet for most part even the even the fight scenes are mostly just sound you don't even have music most of the time and the music is more like um so subtly building up but it's still um it's it's unobtrusive and it it's it's more like building atmosphere but gate of hell's in a way kind of reminds me while we were talking about it it reminds me of a most is it a most a most violent year 
in that it is very quiet. But throughout, and even it has moments where it potentially could burst tension. It doesn't go that direction. But still, you feel this undercurrent, for example, um, the the clash between the discord that is happening, you know, from a macro level, the kingdom that was betrayed to on the micro level, the samurai that falls in love but becomes obsessed when the woman is already um, married to the woman who is not given agency at all. I mean, there's this one scene because she is bored. She just want to clean things up at home. She was not even allowed to do that. So there is always this air of discontent with everyone or um, disarray. But because the film keeps this facade of stateliness in terms of its direction, in terms of how scenes are blocked or even how movement is intentionally slow, the disconnect starts to grow and grow. Like there is something wrong inside of me while I'm watching Gate of Hell. And that kind of comes to head with the end when um, someone is killed. Uh, how many years before like a spoiler is not a spoiler anymore? I don't know. But someone is killed and I mean, it becomes, yeah. Over half a century. <laughs> Someone died. I'll leave it there. But you know, there's also this. Um, the desperation is growing. The oppression, the, the the presence of oppression is strong. Um, the factor with gender. Um, on you know, you, you verbalized what I was feeling. She, um, Lady Cass is being stripped away uh, off of her. Um, any semblance of agency these things to be tackled in such a uh, disconcertingly quiet way it lends off to a different kind of power a different kind of potency and you know I come off of another Jigaideki film which is Samurai The Legend of Musashi which is you know just like emotions <laughs> out there with this one just holding almost everything in it realizes its power in a way that I didn't expect and maybe a way that I didn't prepare for. But, um, you know, you were enumerating how the, how the film really tackled a lot of post-war issues. Um, yeah, it is quite striking. And you've seen, you've seen quite a number of Jigaideki films now. Um, where do you think this place is? In the canon of GK Deki films that you've seen so far. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, as you say, it's very quiet. It's a very chamber piece sort of film. It is a film that I think it's easier to respect than to love, at least from my perspective. Um, but it, its beauty is probably unrivaled, even though I love like Mitsugushi films more. This film has a pictorial quality that is just out of this world. Uh, like Eastman Collar was just coming. It, it was it was a newfangled technology. Part of the problem with Eastman Collar is how it ages, so that's why the film got so degraded over time. Um, but what it allowed, 
the filmmakers, both Kinugas and these designers to produce is just so incredible. And like the designs are very historically accurate. There is the, despite the sort of theatricality that one can feel in the staging, it is actually in terms of design and in terms of the materialization of the world, it is very naturalistic. It is really trying to recreate the past. And maybe because it's in color and it's so beautifully photographed, it sort of feels like the epitome of Japanese cinema of this era in its depiction of the of the historical past. Again, even though I, I prefer I, I prefer Sancho the Bailiff and Ugetsu and Mizoguchi's films. And Kurosawa's films are more entertaining than this, certainly, even something like The Hidden Fortress, which is not my favorite, but you know. Um, I think it's it, it's in terms of visuals, it is really up there. In terms of overall legacy, not so much. Mostly because again, it it survived in a very degraded print throughout most of its of its, of its existence. And I think Kenosuke Kinogasa's role in Japanese film history is a bit affected by by that. And this is a big problem when you're looking at Japanese film history is that this period, the golden age, the post-war, is so dominated internationally by Ozu, Mizoguchi, and Kurosawa that it almost seems like the other names got smothered. Even though people like Kinugasa and Naruse and early Kobayashi were doing really incredible stuff too. I don't know where this place is in terms of even my own personal ranking. But again, talking purely from a formal perspective, this is up there in the top. It is just so gorgeous. I could just look at this film for ages. I'm kind of with you on the I'm kind of on the same page with you, and that doesn't normally happen with terms of how I just really respect this film, but more than love it. Um and I'm still discovering this era. <laughs> um, this season is really covering it in almost real time on how I'm just discovering films along the way, which films that I should have probably seen years ago. What would Gate of Hell? Um, the mastery, I think, is unparalleled. Like, But it does place one, one of those films where um, I really respect what it was going for. I understood, <laughs> subconsciously understood what it was going for and now that we are unpacking it now i like you're wording it out thank you but still i still have this that distance from it um i'm certainly a very emotional viewer as you know and um gate of hell isn't that it's not interested in big emotions it is interested in studying what is happening between the lines between dialogue between movements it that is more invested in that um to the point where it chooses to tell this story in a way that could either pull the audiences in or push them away because of the prominence of silence, the prominence and the constant asking of patience. The patience in the storytelling equates to the patience that it asks the viewers. But if you're on that ride, and I think you will be rewarded with this one. Um... I forgot what I was supposed to say. <laughs> um, 
Costumes, I think. Yeah, costumes. Because you asked me first, and that was very rude. Now I want to. <laughs> now I want to ask you. Yeah. I've never said costumes since you know. Um, costumes are winner. Mhm. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, you want me to talk about the costumes? I mean, the costumes are wonderful. Oh, let's hear it. You're gonna go there anyway. I mean, they're they're, they're like what looking at a Japanese painter's scroll from the. Well, not the 12th century, because this is actually based on a painted scroll that 200, like the 14th century, but whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it, there is a, a care for historical detail that is very much appreciated, but there is just this love of textiles that captured in Eastman color is just ravishing to look at. This is... Again, the contrast between how cruel this movie is and how beautiful it is, it's really, it really unnerves you as you're watching. Because you're watching, okay, even even Watanabe is sort of a decent person, but mm, he's, he's a man, all men are trash. Um, uh, me included, you too. Um, <laughs> it's true. Um, like, Everybody is so nasty and horrible in this movie, but it's also beautiful. It's like looking at a beautiful poisonous flower or something. And the costumes again is, is that thing which is very present in Japanese fashion from this period and most periods actually until the twentieth century, where it's more about volumes and textiles than it is about um, giving form to the human body underneath. So you're almost looking at these people as if they're sculptures. And you're, at a certain point, you're like, run away. You almost want to shout for Lady Cousin to get the hell out of there. But And I think the costumes both help that frustration and sort of make it more insidious because it is still so beautiful to watch the stillness of the frame. I think a lot of that comes from the costumes. And like she's almost constantly in gold. She looks like like warmth impersonated within the film, while while our two male protagonists, if you want Morito and Watanabe, are almost always in cool colors. So you almost feel like she come. They almost feel like lizards being drawn to the sun that she embodies. And there is that sequence where all the men are dressed in white. Which again feels so almost perfidious because these are people who who shed blood as a living, and everybody dressing this pure white in court feels so wrong. And then this is followed by a scene where Morito kills someone, and that white gets uh, interrupted by a splash of blood. It is it is so gorgeous and. Thinking about this, I just realized that the only time you really see Lady Kase in more of a cooler palette is at the beginning when she's pretending to be someone else. And when she's in Morito's care, where she dresses in that green silk robe. So it almost makes me wonder if maybe Morito didn't sort of fall in love with this image of ownership rather than the woman because she's treated like an object by all of these men 
until the end where oh okay she was the only person here that that sort of understood everything that was going on you the end is defined by our action by our, in the interiority you've been you haven't been able to see throughout the film and it's an example that was suggested by Mashiko Kyo who is incredible who looks incredible in those costumes and who is an incredible superstar actress from this period so I think the customs are both what I want to say is that the customs are both beautiful visually historically interesting but they also I think they really help the films thematically and dramaturgically they they really define the human drama even if it's not very noticeable behind the splendor but they are there telling their own story this this tale of imperial beauty that hides an an interior rot because everybody may be beautiful but they're all rotting inside what's your favorite piece from the film and they like individual costumes i guess it's got to be um lady casa's decoy green robe it 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 just glows off the screen it's incredible i'm so glad this film was restored because those images are just so fucking pretty mm. it was so bad before it was really bad you have no idea <laughs> Okay. I might send you like a, yeah. a picture if I can find. Yeah, please do. Um, I remember now because I, I think when I was in film school in the production design class, this was one of the stills that was sent. I was always presented in class as I got it. I don't know the explanation, but it was shown in class. Stills of Gate of Hell. So that's why I, I do have some recall on how stunning the the visuals are, especially the costumes and the production design. Um, you really nailed it when you said that the film is unnerving because there is this, um, there is something. Not everything is aligning. Like I said, beautiful costumes, beautiful gowns, it's, it's the stillness. There's something wrong because this film is about betrayal. It's about obsession. It's about war. It's about violence, but the film re- doesn't indulge in it's, it's it's as if it doesn't want to sensationalize those but instead it forces you to just like panic inside i guess yeah, well, <laughs> and not be able to express it kind of what you should feel in the moment it kind of puts you in lady Kessa's shoes at least in a certain yeah. of this sort of cold panic that you are unable to escape from did you call the film like a did you compare the film to a poisonous flower yes yeah it's like something that is beautiful but there's something wrong inside um you compare it to a poisonous flower i compare it to a demon twink anyway with this, this film is about um this film is also showing lady kiss's struggles in this society <clears throat> i've said i've raised this question in other episodes as well, where you know during this era, and they are about um, women having um, mis- misfortunes or misadventures, um, and I will ask it also with this one: um, Did you ever feel that the film came to a point when 
it was already misogynistic? Or do you think it was handling the issue well enough to not go into that direction? I mean, I'm, look, I'm not a woman, so of course my perspective. Yes. No, but, but really, there there is a there is a there are limits to my perspective on this subject. Mm. I think the film is quite well balancing out portraying a misogynistic world without being itself misogynistic. But I would, but I, I, I again, I would um, accept a reading of a film that portrays it as misogynistic because we because it's a film about subverting uh, i hate this expression but subverting expectations by placing you in morito's narrative like he's your guide to the narrative but i can see uh, a criticism of the film that says you know lady kessa in the end is the most the most interesting character actually in the narrative and the way the film blocks her interiority the film keeps it from you while it's narratively purposeful it also sort of does the same that all the men in her life are doing, which is reduce her to an object. Again, I think it does this purposely. I think that is aligned with the the very formal nature of its staging and its its embrace of period stateliness and social codes, etc. But I, I could see that critique. I think it works. I think it's more of a criticism of misogyny than a misogynistic work of art. And again, I think a lot of it also comes from Ashiko Kyo, who was a big star in Japan. So like maybe a, a, an audience who hasn't seen a lot of Japanese cinema from this year will go into the film not knowing any of the actors, but an audience at the time would have felt drawn to her as a star. So even though the film isn't giving you a lot about her interiority, her mere presence in front of a camera would attract your projection and your attachment. She's also fabulous in the role, I have to say. It's it's such a quiet role. She brings such intensity to it without ever seeming like she's stepping out of this very muted register. Like when he corners her at her aunt's house, that scene is excruciating to watch in part because you almost you sort of almost feel the the need to move in Kyo's face in Kyo's entire demeanor but that she knows she can't escape so she stands frozen and in panic and under his power yeah it, it yeah very uncomfortable to watch Yeah, it is. Um, I would like to raise now one question because I because I cannot read the question that I was supposed to ask. I'm going to ask another question. <laughs> um, oh, now I understand what I wrote. Um, do you think it is... Because you already kind of mentioned it, I just want to clarify. Do you think it is really possible that, the fi that a film could be transformed from a misogynistic art to a film that is a criticism of misogyny with just the power of the actor that is portraying the role. Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. And if you want a more uh, contemporary example, I think take Isabelle Huppert out of L, and that film doesn't work. And can become very misogynistic, but put her in that role, and she completely twists the meaning of everything. 
One quick question. Do you think promising a woman was misogynistic? Fuck, you really want to get me into trouble, don't you? No, I just, it was a I don't, yes or no I question. don't like promising a woman. Okay? I don't like, and I hate that ending. That was not my question. I think it's a film with a lot of good intentions that, that falls into tropes that I think are stemmed in misogyny, even if internalized. And while, and while I can see those same tropes work better in this 1953 film, I think in 2020, 2020, and without the guise of period formalism, those same tropes to me read as very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the most interesting character in, in Gate of Hell for you? Oh, Lady Kessa, for sure. Same. Is it because we're not straight? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I'm, I will always be. I will always be drawn to a fabulously dressed woman <laughs> in a film. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And I will always be drawn to a female character, regardless. Like a person, a, an actress in ten minutes, she's in a lead role. I don't care about anything else. Um, is there anything? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I mean, uh, we're extra sexual fags, so you know. That's in our nature. I... You know, we're... And, and Masika is such a great star. Of course I'm going to obsess <laughs> over her. And it's her decision, her, her choices that kind of shape the film. Of course she's the most interesting character. Fuck Marito. <laughs> Alright, so is there anything else you'd like to add to Gate of Hell? I mean, I would just say to people, if you, if you watch the film and you enjoy it, you should really explore this era of Japanese filmmaking, the films of Mashiko Kyo, and if you are interested in exploring Kinugasa's filmography, watch A Page of Madness, which is crazy and crazy different from this film. A Page of Madness? I think that's the name, yeah. All right, I'm going to check it out. All right, so if you have nothing else to add to Gate of Hell, that is Gate of Hell. ユドキオモリ殿にお願いした時初めてそなたを人妻と知ったが俺はなぜか諦めきれん。それは無体なことでございます。無体は承知だ。今朝殿、俺の心を分かってくれぬか。俺はそなたのためならどんなことでもして
Um, let's take a look at the other nominees this year at the Oscars. Uh, we have here. Let's get this out of the way. Uh, Forbidden Games from France, uh, directed by Rene Clément. It was nominated for Best Story, but it actually won Foreign Language Film in 1952. Um, this is confusing because I know that the honorary award, these are like, they are the best film released that year in the United States. But Forbidden Games was awarded in 52, but was eligible this year. Because it was the thing, the, the criteria for that honorary award changes almost every fucking year during this decade. Sometimes yeah. it's the best film released internationally. Sometimes it's the best film released in the United States. And Forbidden Games is a prime example of that. Thank you for the clarification. So um, I'm not going to talk about it that much because we'll discuss it next week. But you've seen it. I'd like to hear your quick thoughts on it. Uh, I think I think it's a great film. It's uh, not really. It's, uh, it's got some of the best child performances I've ever seen. It is a very powerful meditation on the scars of war seen through the prism of youth. And it is interesting to look at that, really at that trauma through the perspective of, of children who maybe aren't fully equipped to understand everything that's happening. Yes, thank you for that. Um, I am not going to object to any of those, but... More on that next week. The episode is already recorded. Um, so let's go to the double feature by Max Ophuls. Um, Ophuls. Ophuls. Look, um, I, I mispronounced every Japanese name until now. So let's miss. Let's... I cannot forgive myself if I mispronounce names. Let's, you know, let's mispronounce some European name now. You know, let's be, no, I'm not. I'm, let, let's no. be egalitarian. <laughs> no, no. Max Affels. All right, so he has two films this year nominated. The Earrings of Madame Day dot, 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 and Le Plaisir. Which one would you like to discuss first? Okay. Um, I don't know. They're so good. I love Max Affels films. And these two are amazing. Le Plaisir is it's an anthology film which i'm not <laughs> crazy about yeah so le plaisir first sure let's talk about le plaisir uh, le plaisir nominated for art direction black and white um i got this online a doctor an artist and a madam appear in vignettes from stories by good uh, never mind I can't remember my song. all right so <laughs> I, wanna, God, I wasn't able to prepare for that name. I'm sorry. Guy, Guy de Maupassant. Guy de Maupassant. I think. I think it's Guy. <laughs> Guy de Maupassant. Talk about the film, please. What do you think of this film? I think it's ravishing, luxurious, like all of those period films from this time. <laughs> it features beautiful people doing crazy things in love and lust. I love it. It is so beautiful. Every camera movement is a symphony of perfection. It is just so great. I think, though, my favorite... Like, this is three stories. Okay, so this is uh, Le Masque, Les Maisons Telliers, and Le Modèle. 
And I think the third one is my favorite with Simon Simon. It's, you know, if you love French cinema from this period, you have to watch the film. And again, it's basically three shorts stitched together. So it's, it's really easy to watch. And everything is created in this essential manner. That domination is fully deserved. Like just the atelier of the la- the atelier set of the last one and all those flowery walls in, within the first uh, chapter. Like, it fully deserved that nomination. It should have gotten more. Like I would have nominated Simon Simon for Best Supporting Actress. What did you think? Was this your first experience with Max Hoffman? Uh, n- no. No. Uh, okay, but not English. In non, not in English. We. Oui. Yeah, because oui. you watched Letter from an Unknown Woman, which you, you know, oui. w- whose genius you didn't fully grasp because you're an idiot. Hey, l- listen. <laughs> <laughs> you're in my show. <laughs> no, I. I love you. I was. <laughs> I was saving this for later but since you've opened that wound <laughs> I am just gonna go there um, <laughs> Le Plaisir and um, The Earrings of Madame Day I forgot that they were directed by Max Achilles Achilles, Achilles. whatever but when I was watch, it will always bother me um, when I was watching those films that sophisticated way of filmmaking that is energized despite its um it it feels it's just it's it's masterfully done but you know not in the same bland personality less way that um films from around the same time made in hollywood feel sometimes this feels like it was intentionally when it moves the camera. It is in with intention. It fe- it it feels delicious when I watch it. When I was watching these films, I'm like, this reminds me of Letter from an Unknown Woman. I don't know why. <laughs> and then they were from the same director. All three of those, Le Plaisir, the Irons of Madame Day, and Letters from an Unknown Woman. With Le Plaisir, um, of course, first viewing, um, I just. Took it for what it is. I just enjoyed this one. I was uh, delighted the whole time. I agree. The art direction is stunning. Um, I, I, there, there's nothing much to say for me aside from I really just enjoyed it because I, I would admit, um, I watched *Irons of Madame de Le Plaisir* back to back, but I watched them more as a passive viewer. I just was feeling it. As opposed to parsing through it, but Le Plaisir, um, as you beca- I just en- and as you yeah. become a Daniel Darius fan. Uh, yes, um, she. This is in both of them. Yeah, she is. Um, she, she's the thing. Um, the same way that I, in forty eight, I fell in love with Vivian Romans. Um, with her work here and later in the Rings of Madame Day, she's just so good. Why are French actresses so good? <laughs> is there anything else you'd like to add to Le Plaisir? This is the camera. <laughs> this is going to sound so stupid. Uh, 
like some of those shots are so beautiful. They sort of make me horny. Like they are just so. What? Okay, let's go. No, really? Like it's like you're watching. Oh, this is so perfect. Ah, so good. It's so good. I love it so much. Even if some of these stories, again, they are not the nicest stories in terms. They, some of these, like the model, are about. Mm, they're cruel in some way. Even though they're about love and lust. But again, like in, in Gate of Hell, just the sheer beauty of their presentation kind of makes them... It's like, it's like you're drinking ambrosia that's laced with arsenic. It, it's, it, its aroma is so ravishing that even if it's killing you, you don't mind. So you compare Le Plaisir to uh, Ambrosia with Arsenic? Yes. Nectar I- I'm comparing Le Plaisir to being with a demon twink. Um, so with <laughs> the Eris of Madame... <laughs> okay, the you, of can, Madame you, you can't compare every film to a demon twink, okay? <laughs> I actually can. I'll prove it to you. You want that challenge? You want to take a bet? <laughs> um... Uh, even Godzilla, I could compare it to Demon Twink. Anyway, is Godzilla so... the Demon Twink? What a big Demon Twink that is! You'll figure out later. Um. So yeah, Le Plaisir. Um. Like, um. So yeah, Le Plaisir is a delight, and um, I'm happy that I saw this. Again, three short stories by Guy de Maupassant, Le Masque, Le Mesentelier, and Le Model. The next one, The Earrings of Madame Day from France, also directed by Max Raffles, nominated for costume design, black and white. It is about a woman, an aristocratic woman, only known as Madame Day. She sells her pair of earrings. Um, that sets a domino effect to that affects everyone around her and her. Um... You're not the only person that hyped me for this. I think now I want to know your take on this. I think the earrings of Madame Deux is one of the best films ever made. Can you expound on that? Talk about hype, right? Claim. <laughs> I mean, it is one of the great romantic tragedies to me. Though it reaches that romantic tragedy in such a bleak manner, like just following this object, the earring around, is such a fascinating way of meeting the characters, of sensing both a time and place, but also but also people. It's it's one of those films where it, it is just such heightened melodrama. But every formal and performance choice is done with such elegance that it sort of like keeps it from being exploitative or cheap. And and it is it's just beautifully designed. And I mean this both in terms of material terms like the sets and the belle époque costumes, but also just the shots. The opening shot of this film is rightfully legendary. And like, it, it is, it is just, it's just a perfect. I, I can't find one fault in this film. It's just perfect, and I can understand how it has influenced so many people. Like 
Paul Thomas Anderson, who is a known fan of this film, and you can see a lot of Offwell's way of working the camera and doing long tracking shots, but very elegant and very dramatically purposeful. You can see a lot of that later percolating and ending up in something like Boogie Nights. You want me to talk more? You told me you wanted to keep this short. I'm trying to keep it. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, it is a Madame Dame. <laughs> Again, I'm also operating on first viewing, but I I was so look I was so searching for the word, and you took the word out of my mouth. It's it's elegance. Um, I totally agree with you. It could have been something that there is someone out there, a less careful filmmaker, who would just have milked the drama out of this, but instead, kind of like Gate of Hell, it establishes that patient rhythm in telling its story and add sophistication and elegance to it that is quite appropriate <laughs> to the story and it you know I don't always say it but in this episode I kind of feel like I did it's delicious to watch this film you just it's it's just like savor everything that it's been doing the camera movement the 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 blocking the pacing the the movement the acting it's the the costumes the earrings, the, you know, I, I am, I, I am kind of scared sometimes when friends recommend films to me because they build up something like, nope, not for me. Why are we friends? But with this one, I'm just like, yeah, we are friends. This is a very wonderful film that I, unfortunately, it's just on my first viewing, but um, I can see, I, I already feel that there is a rewatch value for this film. And I want to study it because on how, how do you make a film elegant? Not just in a way that, you know, like what you see, but on how a film is made. That the elegance comes from that as well. Um, and I don't know. Her her name was never revealed, right? She's no. the Comtesse Louise de whatever. De. Da, da, da. Madame de... Dim one twink. All right, so let's go to the other <laughs> films this year. So, so to, to, to you, the demon twink would be what? The seeker? Or just a concept of love and desire? How intoxicating focus on toxic love could be? Okay. You should know. Don't. Reveal personal stuff on this. <laughs> no, I mean you, you, you just love demon twins. Uh, that's all I meant. You just love demon twins. You love those skinny little bitches who destroy your life that looks great. You know, you know too much in my life. I hate it. <laughs> like, I should censor myself. I hate it. Anyway. You love um, this it. Year, you love it. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is not a good weekend for me. <laughs> um <laughs> No, he said the beach. <laughs> anyway, so okay. let's go to 1954 as a year in film. Oh quiet, God. quiet, quiet. Will we have another conversation after the recording is over? Oh, no. No, 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 Not no, no. We are, we are going to be professionals. Oh, um, okay. So this... Yeah. We, we are never professional. <laughs> this is... Oh, my gosh. Why this is not working so well. Why, why is this episode being weaponized against me? I hate it. This is not a gossip thing. All right. So this year... 19, yeah. 
Shut up. I mean, I think I, think I, you, I cannot handle it. <laughs> you are, we are promoting parasocial relationships between you and your audience. You're gonna... Not that one. Stop. No. <laughs> I don't want that. It's not happening yet. No. I'm sure. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. You, this is going to be hell to edit. <laughs> no, I'm not even going to edit that part. You're like, just going to everyone. This is me. You know? Um, this year, can I can I continue with the show? Sure, sure. sure. It's your <laughs> yeah. show. You're the boss. Also from the same category, Bread, Love, and Dreams from Italy. Uh, also nominated for Best Story. Uh, when 1954, there are such a lot of great stuff from uh, films from all over the world. Please correct me if I say the wrong um, country <laughs> to associate. Um, well, we'll talk about one film in particular, but I'm just gonna run down some of the films here that were released in '54. Uh, the Crucified Lovers from Japan, directed by Kenji Mizuguchi. Um, Fear from Italy, directed by Roberto Rossellini. Godzilla from Japan, directed by Ishiro Honda. The Gold of Naples from Italy, directed by Vittorio De Sica. Journey to Italy, directed by Roberto Rossellini from Italy. La Strada. From Italy, directed by Federico Fellini. We already discussed in the 60, uh, 56 episode. I still wonder why it was in 56, but oh, no, I don't know. Uh, Lesson in Love from Sweden, directed by Ingmar Bergman, starring uh, Eva Dahlbeck. Uh, Samurai, the, Samurai The Legend of Musashi from Japan, directed by Hiroshi Inagaki. Discussed the previous episode. Uh, Sancho the Bailiff, directed by Kenji Mizuguchi from Japan. Senso from Italy. Directed by Lucchino Visconti. Seven Samurai from Japan. Directed by Akira Kurosawa. I should have seen this already. Sound of the Mountain from Japan. Directed by Mikio Naruse. Touche Pa O'Grisby. Ah, directed by Jacques Becker from France, I assume. A Woman of Rumor from Japan. Directed by Kenji Mizuguchi. Wuthering Heights from Spain. Mexico. Directed by Louis Bunuel. And from Egypt, The Blazing Sun from Youssef Shaheen. Um, we've seen one film. Both of us. <laughs> we have one film overlap. Can you introduce that film? Um, the theme of this episode is Japanese post-war trauma. And if Gates of Hell presents it in a very stately manner, refracting it through the... the period pageantry of a Jidageki, then this film explodes it in sci-fi trappings. We're of course talking about Godzilla. Was that a good introduction? Yes, Godzilla. Now, Godzilla from Japan. Again, directed by Ishiro Honda. It is about um, a scientist that discovers um, because of uh, a hydrogen bomb a radiation caused um, a monster. The name of the monster is Godzilla. And Godzilla starts wreaking havoc in Japan. <clears throat> I did not prepare for that song. <laughs> I just saw it a while ago. Well, everybody, for... everybody knows Godzilla, I think. Right? It's a, I hope they add it. It's a, it's a kaiju I, I movie. Hope. It's a giant monster destroying stuff. And, you know, and, and you're watching... I, it was... Why are you it's one of the most embarrassing things I did on this podcast. Oh, no, it's not. I'm sure it's not. I'm sure there are more embarrassing things. 
Whatever. What do you think of this film? I love it. You know what? I gave myself for a birthday last year. I pre- I-, I gifted myself the huge Criterion Godzilla collection. I, lo- I saw it already, right? Yeah, you saw it already. I showed you that huge book. <sighs> Godzilla is so cool. I love that film. It is so incredibly entertaining, but also thought-provoking. Mm-hmm influential and Godzilla is just such a good boy isn't he he's such a nice little monster I love him sure he kills people but yeah and he's also sort of like the the embodiment of the of the nuclear trauma in Japan's recent history but but he's so cute look at him oh I love Godzilla (laughs) And of course, you love the the Twinkie Shacker, because of course you do. Um, not even the interesting mad scientist one. You have to go to the blandest of them all. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Godzilla, the first one is the. You should go. You should go. Is <laughs> the, the rare monster room where I think the the human characters and the human drama are just as interesting as the big boy destroying the world. Right. You know, I I totally agree with Godzilla being such um, you know, it is entertaining. Given, um, I'm surprised on how entertaining it was, but why are you surprised? I what? No, because no, because I think as as I go back in film, there becomes this barrier sometimes in terms of pacing, because of you know when, never mind. But with, um, <laughs> I give up. I don't have to explain myself. But with, actually, I do because it is a podcast. But with Godzilla, uh, I totally agree when you said that the human drama is just as interesting as with the spectacle of the big monster. In fact, that gives more weight to the monster, and the monster isn't. I'm kind of really kind of regret what I said 10 seconds ago. It's not a spectacle. I mean, it kind of is, you know, cinematically, but at the same time, it shoots it radiation is, is huge. It's, it, it's amazing. It's root. It's rooted in very uncomfortable truths. Um, I kind of see the social commentary come through. And the, the only Godzilla film that I've seen is a 2014 one. Um, I never compared it to that. This feels like its own animal. <laughs> um, this is just so rich in its storytelling. Um, there are films where, you know, in science fiction especially, where you kind of have to decode a lot of stuff before you could get through the message. With this one, it is easy to understand, but it's also not a giveaway. You could take it as an entertaining film, but it is so much more disturbing when you um start to be more observant of what is being told here the um, how politics can actually come first before the welfare of many people i wonder where that happens uh but with godzilla it's just a stunning piece of work that you know it is in a sci-fi genre but and you know um it never felt that it sold 
its themes short. It is a film that understood what it was trying to say. And um, it becomes this haunting kind of interrogation of post-war, not just Japan, but post-war world. Like, um, when, since when did we become these people? Um, and I don't know, it just stunned me because it has more impact with me. It, it had an impact on me that I didn't expect. Um, I think because, you know, uh, <laughs> this was 1954, we are in 2022, and we are still facing um, huge monsters in our world. And um, some of these just ring really hard. And I always fi find it gratifying when a film that is, you know, comfortably living in the, in the fantasy slash sci-fi slash horror genre to be this loaded in politics and really eloquently told politics not just like throw away the subject or something um it never felt cheap for me it felt it was thoughtful um i'm surprised on how much i i'm surprised on how much i loved it i deeply respect this film um, and some of the visual effects still has aged well. Some, many, I don't know, a few shots. But yeah, I re I really enjoyed Godzilla, and I thought it's a terrific film. I would, I would just, I would like to say that I think genre filmmaking, especially at this time, is maybe the most. It is some of the filmmaking which deals with the most complicated themes, actually. Because you can say a lot through genre, you you can you can explore things that are in subtler ways than you would, like a Stanley Kramer film. By avoiding didacticism, you can really go deep into the visceral reality of very complicated issues. I think this film is a technical masterpiece, like the sound design and the music. Yes. Is out of this world. <clears throat> sure, some of the kaiju effects may look dated, but to me, they still hold up. And they still have such magnificent materiality, which is, you know, the miracle of practical effects is that, you know, everything looks like it has weight to it, which is amazing. And the way the film plays with scale, you know, the way Onda, Ishiro Onda, um, conveys the just the monumental hugeness of Godzilla, of Godzilla. It's, it's amazing. Uh, and it, I think maybe one of the reasons why it sort of hits you so strongly, because again, you are, you are living through a very politically fraught moment yourself in the middle of a political campaign. And I think, um, I think the film, as it started, is very humanistic, despite being, again, a film about people trying to save themselves from a monster. And it's about cooperation and problem solving. And at the end of the day, I think it, it, it presents a glimmer of hope that can be very moving. Yeah, and we could kill the monster. But why would you want to kill Godzilla? He's so, <laughs> I love him so much. Oh. You have issues. Stop. <laughs> 
No. 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 Like, come on. That's... Like in the 60s, he was the, he became the friend of the children. The, the, the Godzilla franchise is very complicated and very bizarre. <laughs> like at a certain point, Godzilla becomes a hero, which is earned. All right, so the films that I've enumerated I'm, a while I'm ago. I'm sorry, I'm a fanboy. Sometimes I have to be. I have to be stupid. Don't you dare! I I know what you're gonna. Don't you dare! I know it's not only sometimes. Okay. You know, I, with the films that you that we have enumerated a while ago, the Crucified Lovers, Fear, The Goal of Naples, Journey to Italy, La Strada, Lesson in Love, Samurai One, Sancho the Bailiff, Senso, Seven Samurai, Son of the Mountain, Two Shape of Ruby, Woman of Rumor, and Wuthering Heights. Um, would you like to discuss a few of these? Okay. Talk about it quite quickly. Whew, okay. Um, okay. <laughs> Maybe let's group this. Time restarts now. <laughs> Shut up. Let's group these by countries. We're on Japan. Let's talk Japan. Let's talk the Mizoguchi triple feature of the Woman of Rumor, of Sancho the Bailiff, and the Crucified Lover. These are amazing films. Most of all of them deal with a society that is oppressive towards women, as most Mizoguchi films did at the end of the day. Sancho de Bailiff is, again, one of the best films ever made. It's also one of the cruelest films ever made. I heartily recommend it. The Crucified Lovers and the Women of Rumor are similarly depressing, but less so, less brutal at, about it. But these films are amazing. Uh, the Crucified Lovers and Sancho de Bailiff are Jidaigeki. They, again, they explore their themes through period settings. Um, Women of Rumor, not so much, but they all have incredible performances. I would like to, to bring special attention to Kunoya Tanaka's supporting performance in Sancho the Bailiff, which is just heartbreaking as the mother of the lead character, and also Kyoko Kagawa in The Crucified Lovers as a woman in 17th century Kyoto who is prosecuted for adultery. And it's, especially that last one really brings forth a reflection on the role of women and how marriage can be a trap in some ways. And uh, and to continue to uphold marriage as this, this holy thing, even on the face of clear human misery, is inherently dishuman and cruel. Uh, and like, formally, these films are amazing. Another amazing film that deals with similar themes is Mikio Naruse's Son of the Mountain with Setsuko Wara in the lead role. In Not the lead role, but the lead female role. It's actually told from the point of view of her father-in-law, who is basically watching as his son is sort of destroying this woman. And through cheating and through a lot of... Uh, it, it is a very depressing film, very pessimistic, but at the end of the day, it actually kind of ends in a bittersweet hopeful ending you know it's it's beautiful if you want to if you are a lover of great acting you have to watch the Mizoguchi films but also you have to watch Sound of the Mountain and the sublime performance of Setsuko Ara. she can make a smile into the most heartbreaking thing imaginable a film maybe a bit more detached from social commentary is Seven Samurai Akira Kurosawa's Masterpiece, Seven Samurai. Uh, maybe the 
one of the most entertaining souls I've ever made. I have to say, it's just incredibly fun and harrowing to watch it. I don't have much to say about it because everything has been said already. Come on. Everybody has written about Seven Samurai and how influential it is and the incredible performances like Takeshi Shimura and Toshiro Mifune. I love you. <laughs> um, don't make that face. You've been making this is the podcast, but you've been making mid bitch faces at me. <laughs> during all good look at that eyebrow. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I love Seven Samurai. It's incredibly influential. It's really one of the films that every person who calls themselves a cinephile should watch. And don't be intimidated by the long running time because it really flies by. You haven't watched it, have you? No, not yet. I have to recommend I do like it. It is very long, but it is incredible. From Japan, we move to another country that was on a another country of the axis during World War II. Italy. Wow. And you say it with Uh, such joy, you know. I love it. I don't say with such joy, but these films truly are are operating at the level of a society that is living through the trauma of of the violence of war, you know, and, and being on the losing side and not only the violence of war but the oppression of fascist regimes that preceded it. Um, you, know, you already talked about La Strada, so I'm not going to just... Julieta Massinita Goddess, go watch it. I would like to bring attention to the three Rossellini films of this year, three films with Ingrid Bergman, Journey to Italy, Fear, and Joan of Arc at the Stake. Journey of Italy is... With, again, you probably, if you're going to watch these films, maybe you will watch them in an English-language version. This is Italian cinema. They didn't do direct sound recording. Everything was dubbed. A lot of times these actors were speaking <laughs> different languages. Just go with it. Um, but I will still consider them international films. Journey to Italy is a, is a film that to me is maybe one of the most historically important films in terms of bl- uh, of bridging neorealism with... The mo- with the modernism and even postmodernism that was coming in at this time. It is incredibly significant in Rossellini's filmography. And the moment when Ingrid Bergman's character is confronted by the dead bodies at Pompeii is maybe one of my favorite scenes of all time. It almost looks like the actress herself realizing that she is within this film like those bodies. She's just a ghost, an impression of someone that was once alive but is not anymore. Because looking at that film, all of those people have died. They are ghosts, they're impressions in celluloid, just like those bodies in Pompeii are impressions in ash. I heartily recommend it. Uh, Fear is more in a suspenseful thriller milieu rather than Journey to Italy's melodrama. Also, Journey to Italy is an interesting film because it, 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 it's incorporates sort of a, a meta-textual dialogue between neorealism and the Italian fascist white telephone films. Like, if you're interested in Italian film history at the time, go watch those. Um, Joan of Arc at the stake is Ingrid Bergman's second go-around at playing um, Joan of Arc. It is much better than the first go-around. <laughs> Everything could be is better than the first. <laughs> it is 
uh, a mix of drama of spoken dramaturgy and opera. It's mostly set within Joan of Arc's mind at the moment where she's going to be burned alive. It is a very abstract film. It exists again at a point where Rossellini was completely untethering himself from neorealism. And it's interesting to see him work within such a highly theatrical register because this is the antithesis of realism, Joan of Arc at the stake. But it's gorgeous and it's it's in color, which is a rarity for Rossellini films. I think was it his first color film? Maybe. I didn't I didn't research that. I should have. Another great color film from Italy is Senzo, Lucino Visconti Senzo. Maybe the best materialization of opera on screen. No, it is not an opera, but it's its narrative works in some similar ways to opera. It is a very political film, despite being a romantic melodrama. It is gorgeous in college i had a teacher who was crazy about this film and gave an entire class about its opening scenes and it's very rich and it is gorgeous pierotta's costumes are to die for it's a film about the tension maybe between passion and reason and sees that through a prism of political unrest and treachery and betrayal of your own values for the purpose of dick <laughs> oh and it's it stars farley granger. relatable it stars farley granger so you will you will feel uh you i know you juan carlos if you watch it film, you'll be like i mean i understand she is betraying her own values but for farley granger's sake you will empathize i know you you know I'm sometimes, right. So, sometimes I sometimes I think, why did it? <laughs> Never mind. It's your if time. You, I won't interrupt you. If you want something more fun, go watch Gold of Naples, which is a portrait of Naples by Vittorio De Sica across six. I think it's six, six short films. It's an anthology film. Not a big fan of those, but this one is really good. It's one of Vittorio De Sica's first. Not his first, because there is Miracolo a Milano, but uh, one of his first forays into outright comedy, even farce. But the way this modulates tone is fascinating. One moment you're in complete farce, the next you're in tragedy. There is a chapter that is just the funeral perception of a child, and it is riveting to watch. It is incredibly sad, amazing. The way he applies formal finesse to even the broadest of comedic registers is honestly gasp-inducing. It also features a very young Sofia Loren. She's very fun, but the big star of the film to me is Silvana Mangano, who plays Teresa in, um, in a, a short about a prostitute who gets embroiled in a very dysfunctional matrimony. And her last scene is amazing. Silvana Mangano was a star, and this film will show you why. Speaking of great stars, Lesson in Love features Eva Dahlbeck at her best. She is one of the amazing Bergman muses. She's not as celebrated as some of the others. I think she's probably the most unknown of his major muses. But she is great in this film. You know who's also great? Ariette Anderson, who's very young in this film. But again, she's always great, but this one about 
in f- about about two married people growing apart, about infidelity and the emotional cost of it. It's a lesson in love, but moreover, a lesson in the dysfunctional and quietly painful sides of love. It is also funny at times. It is really funny, I have to say. In Dalbeck's performance, she she was such an effervescent presence in front of the camera. And when you give her outright comedy material to play, even if it again arises from very dark emotions, she kills it. It's a killer performance. And I recommend the film mostly on that base. But if you're a Bergman film, you have to watch it. Like just watch, just see some some images of Eva Dalbeck in the film, and you will realize, oh, this is Bergman in a in a considerable lighter tone than usual. Um, films about people in love suffering. Let's go to Mexico for Wuthering Heights. Luis Buñuel adapted the Bronte novel, the Emily Bronte novel, into which is, by the way, one of my favorite books of all time into this phantasmagoria exercise. It's very gothic. It is fascinating. I've watched it on the big screen, which is a great experience. Um, my favorite part, maybe the last thing, it cuts the second half of the novel. If you, if you are going to watch it because you love the novel, be aware of that. But it does great things with the, with the part it, it dramatizes. I especially love the sound design, the way it, it it makes the weather into a very oppressing presence, oppressive presence, and the, the set design. The way you understand the characters through the, their houses and the spaces they inhabit is really fascinating. And I think lastly, I would just like to talk about, just mention to ship Pao Grisby with a Jacques Becker film. Again, is the master of French cinema that maybe isn't as heralded as others, mostly because he lived at the same time and worked at the same time as as other names that became much more famous internationally independent cinephile uh, circles. But to Grisby is really great. Jean Gabin won Best Actor at Venice for it. A very laconic view of the gangster film very rueful. It's like an old man's gangster film, and I mean this in the best way possible. Um, Gabin is great. You can also see um, Jean Moreau at the start of her career in this film, already a scene stealer. It's great. It, you can see why Becker was considered such a master. And if you like, I know people. some people don't like Gabin, you know, the shovel-faced star of mid-century French cinema, but I really like him, and I think this is a great showcase for his... for how he brings gravitas to his films without doing a lot. He's very minimalistic in his stoicism, but really impactful. And this film is beautifully shot, as all Jack Becker films are. Actually, most of these films that I've mentioned are, in terms of form, they are pristine examples of filmmaking where storytelling, despite being very present, does not, uh, like a conservative storytelling, does not immediately cause 
uh, a shabby form. No, these films all live in their form. Their form is part of their content, of their... So there is no style over substance. Style is substance in this film. And that is great. Again, I didn't talk about, Tosh- about Toshiro Mifune in Samurai 1 because you left off the already about it. But it, I, I really like the Samurai trilogy. The third one is probably my favorite. So, uh, there's that. And I love Toshiro Mifune, not just because he's hot, but because he's such a great actor. It is because he's hot. It's not just because he's hot. There is a myriad of reasons. There is. <laughs> there is. You, you're just discovering him now. I discovered him when I was in college. Okay, I've seen a lot of his films. He's great. Don't give me that face. I'm sorry. Don't, you haven't. Have you watched Redbeard? No, I haven't. Have you watched Yojimbo? No, I haven't. So. Your opinion on Toshiro Mifune, if the, you saying that I just like him because he's hot is irrelevant because you haven't watched his best performance. I just, mm. for the listeners, I just, um, you know, he just disrespected me in my own show. Card. You want me to play the race card? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I know, I know, I'm a colonialist. Fuck you, I know. Um... That is gonna stay. All right, so course, I would like to ask. I would like to ask. I would like to ask you though. Um, you have talked about in a very quick, like, ten, fifteen minutes. You've talked about at least sixteen films, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise and your um longevity in this world. Um, with these films, did um, you just call me old? <laughs> How my can you choose like your favorite film from these 16 that you've discussed because you haven't seen The Blazing Sun, I haven't too, and I regret that. But, um, what is your favorite from these 16? That is such a hard question. That's why I asked it. I asked the hard questions. Wow, (laughs) you're so good. Uh... I'm not a journalist, I'm sorry. Can I, can I say a four-way tie? What? Can I give a four-way tie? We love a four-way, right? No? I refuse to comment. <laughs> I plead the fifth. Oh, yeah. You prefer when it's five. Four is too little. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I plead the fifth. You plead the fifth. No, no. Neither of us is American. What the fuck are you talking about? You plead the fifth. Yeah, the fifth here would be like, what is it? What are you talking about? Thou shall not kill? What's the fifth? Um, so, what is what is your four-way title? Whatever. Be okay, the so Golden I'm, Globes, I don't know. Like, like a critic's choice, probably. Go ahead. I am the Critics' Choice Awards. I love that. Uh, Sancho, I think Sancho Senso Journey and Seven Samurai. They are four of my favorite films. If I had to pick one, maybe Journey to Italy... And even then, I don't know. I love Sancho the Bailiff so much. It makes me cry so much every time I see it. Yeah. Because so, Sancho the Jap- Bailiff, yeah? Because we're in a Japanese mood, I'll say Sancho the Bailiff. Sancho the Bailiff, uh, Journey to Italy, and who are, what are the two others? Senzo and Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. And that's a four-way tie. I mean, you love being tied. Anyway, so, 
with this film. All right, so now let's go to Gate of Hell. The Gate of Hell was the honorary foreign language film awardee of this year. Um, I wanted to ask you now, with all the films that, because this was released, um, the 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 criteria for this year was that you're supposed to be released in the United States. I am taking a look at the films eligible here. Um, they are different from what we've talked about. You know, these times were weird in these, not even a category. Um, Gate of Hell, do you think it's a worthy recipient of the Honorary Foreign Language Film Award? I think it is a good winner. I prefer other eligible films much more than Gate of Hell. Which one, which films would you prefer? I am thinking primarily of three. The Rings of Madame De, which we already discussed. Europa 51, which we will talk about in another episode, I suppose. Yeah, you will. Uh, and one that I know it's not very well known, but I would, I, I would advise everyone to watch this. Olivia by Jacqueline Audry, who is... Jacqueline Audry is one of those Masters of Cinema, that because she's a woman, she has been slightly erased in the annals of history, which is unfortunate. Olivia, also I think called The Pit of Loneliness when it was released in America, is a great film about lesbians set at the girls' school full of psychosexual tensions and manipulation. It's also a beautiful period piece, and you can... It is comparable, I think, to Max Ophuls in the way it uses the camera to explore space and psychology and just ravish you with 19th century beauty, really, just in terms of architecture, in terms of costumes, it's just ravishing. And oh, another connection to, um, to the films we've discussed, it stars Simon Simon as one of the one of the school mistresses, one of two pole, two, two power structures within the school. It is very lesbian, it's very good. I love this film. It's very gay. You see, everybody, let, let's watch more gay 1950s films. They're out there and they deserve to be celebrated. And just because of that I might have given the Oscar to this film, because it would have been awesome for a film directed by a woman to be one of the first winners of Best Foreign Language Film. And a queer film at that, right? It would have been awesome. Was Europa 51 released under a different title? Oh, yeah. I think so. Meanwhile, but... while you're searching for that title, because I was trying to find it, um, I would say the same thing. You know, Gate of Hell, I really respect. And I'm, I'm for some reason, uh, you know... Japan kind of did so well with the honorary foreign language from awards. But when it was time for the competitive like foreign language from award, Japan didn't win until 2008. And it will win again this year for Drive My Car. Um, yes! Yes! Drive My Car! Yes! Um, yeah, it's different running. <laughs> and and um, so what is the title of Europa 51? Okay, Europa 51 was also called No Greater Love and The Greatest Love. Oh, yeah, no, I found it. Yeah, The Greatest Love. Um, but I am on the same page as you. I prefer The Earrings of Madame Day. 
and Europa 51 or The Greatest Love, as it was um, um, titled in the United States. That is such a uh, word title, though, right? Yeah. Um, you'll hear more of my thoughts in the next episode. Um, but yeah, I cannot begrudge, and I won't begrudge Gate of Hell. But I have my own personal choices. Yeah. Though that costume design win was fully deserved. Yes. That what one? what was the what was it up to? Up up against with? Up against two? <laughs> up against oh, in, in the actual nominees? Yeah. It was against Brigadoon, which is a musical a time travel musical set in Scotland. Part of it's supposedly set in eighteenth century Scotland, but you know. Is it whatever? Desiree, which is about, which is a, a big period epic about Napoleon, I think. It, it's it stars Marlon Brando and Gene Simmons and Meryl Oberon. There is a Star is Born, the Judy Garland classic, which does feature amazing costumes, but not as good. And there's no business like show business, which is a, a musical about show business with a lot of famous stars like Ethel Merman and Marilyn Monroe. And curiously enough, this was one of the first classic musicals I watched, and one of the films that made me become obsessed with classic Hollywood musicals. I remember videotaping this when it was on TV, and then watching it endlessly. I think it's probably my first Marilyn Monroe film. And they are all great, but The Gate of Hell is better. And even, you know, within sort of the year, um... I think the closest film I would that I think comes even tangentially close to the just the costume brilliance is maybe the Golden Coach, the Jean Renoir film, which we could have talked about in the in the international. It is it's weird because it, it, it's French and Italian and English and whatever, and and also Rio Window, which is not. A foreign language film with great costumes, but still not as good as Get of Hell. It completely deserved that that Oscar. I'm so glad it did. And and by the way, let, let's just say Sanzo Wada was the Oscar winner because I don't think we've mentioned his name before. Um, Wada deserves victory. It's maybe one of my favorite victories in the category's history. On that note, Claudia, thank you so much for joining me in this episode on Gate of Hell. Um, I didn't expect that this would be our fourth, <laughs> but it was. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And I forgot, oh my gosh, I forgot to ask you a while ago. Can you tell the listeners where can they find you on the internet? Oh, okay. Uh, listeners can find me. At- I, no, I didn't forget. I asked it. <laughs> I'm sorry. What can you tell again, our listeners? Where can they find you on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> that was so smooth, so professional, so smooth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, come on. Um, so, listeners can find me at the Film Experience and Sotogini if you read in English. If you can read in Portuguese, you can also find me at Magazine HD. Uh, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd at Claudio Alves DC. There you go. And if you're not Portuguese but want to read his works, um, open translate.google.com, copy the article, read it there. That's what I did. 
I do not endorse. I do not endorse. Google Translate. He's so eloquent. Not. He's so eloquent with Google Translate. All right, so you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Mahanda. This podcast at One Inch Wire. This podcast is everywhere. Um, this is the final episode before this year's Oscars. Are you looking forward slash not looking forward to the ceremony? Oh, you specific you specify the ceremony. No, I am not looking forward to the ceremony. <laughs> am I looking forward to see some of those artists not honored? Yes. Am I looking forward for the ceremony? Fuck no. This is the first year where I've considered not watching it. Fuck the Academy. Taking those eight categories off air. Well, not off air, but we all know how those clip packages go. Because we've all seen the Tonys and the Critics' Press Awards, and it's never the same. So don't lie and say it is, Academy. We know. <sighs> editing. Editing editing is cinema. How can you think? Ugh. Whatever. Uh, so, but I am super excited for Drive My Car to win. Best international film. I love it. And I'm also looking forward to Coda winning Best Picture. All right. So, they, again, the Patreon page is up and running. No, this is wait, the final no, season. No. no, <laughs> no. Um, no. Please support my work. And uh, thank you again. I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. Oh, and by the way, next week, we're not going to do 1953 because there was no honorary foreign language film award given in 1953 so next week we are jumping right into 1952 where we discuss forbidden games from france uh, i'm kidding i'm with the power of the dog i haven't seen though drive my car um licorice pizza west side story and uh, nightmare alley i haven't seen those yet as of the time of recording and i probably won't before the oscars because i have no time um but again, I'm wishing you all well. This is a goodbye for now. And together, let us break the one-inch barrier.